0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 5. It has been a while, but I'm back with a load of new content coming your way. I've been incredibly busy at work. It is our busy season in the tourist industry, as you can imagine, and working in Boston, it reaches quite a volume. If you have not been to Boston before uh, and you come during our tourist industry uh, high season, you are going to see lots and lots of people, as every attraction in the area does too. So, First, it was school group season, and then our revelry on Griffin's Wharf event at the museum, which I'm sure all of you saw me posting about, with Mall Pitcher. So this was my second year in a row portraying Mall Pitcher, which if you're not uh, new to the podcast, you'll remember her from episode one. Uh, she is the fortune teller of Lynn that I talked about in that episode. If you're new, go check it out. Episode one is on the website, and all of the episodes are on the iTunes podcast app. So anyway, I've been fitting in research where I can, so it has been a while since I've recorded. That being said, I've got some very interesting things I've been working on and some inspiration for not only some Salem-centric things that I would like to revisit, um, but some interviews that will be coming up with some special guests and a very interesting tale about some witches of a very different kind uh, to not give too much away. But I'm not here for any of that, so there's a little bit of an update for you all in case you were wondering why it's been taking me so long to put things out. Uh, But this particular episode has taken quite a long time also because I've had to explore many, many different topics in order to make sure that this research is not only precise, but to make sure that I'm giving you the full picture because there's a lot going on here and it spans many different social, medical, scientific, moral, labor issues So in order to do it justice, it took a lot of double and triple checking on some of my sources. Um, So as a historian, it's very important that I do that. Uh, And if any of you start your own endeavors into research, you'll find out very quickly that topics that seem to have on the surface level Um, just surface-level information, often have a lot more underneath worth extrapolating on. So without further ado, I present to you episode 5, which I have lovingly and nerdily named She's Got Looks That Kill, Deadly Fashions of the 19th Century, because why not use a Motley Crue reference to talk about deadly fashion? Uh, Now, to be fair, this only really covers three particular pieces of fashion, and they are things that maybe you won't be surprised with and some you would not initially think of when you hear looks that kill, unless you happen to be a scholar of early history or just into really weird subject material, which luckily you all are, which is why you're here. But in today's society, the term is kind of used all the time. We've been groomed to die for fashion, whether it be metaphorical or literal. And in the 19th century, many were willing to make that sacrifice. So to start us off, we need to take a step back into the world of 19th century fashion. Now, when confronted with 19th century fashion, most are consumed by romantic ideas about intricate lace, silk in ruffles, pleats for days that could only have been dreamed up in a fantasy. Uh, You think of strict moral and social codes, But you also think of medical advancements, invention, progress, uh, the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution at the end of the 18th century and into the early and mid-19th century. But as we all know, underneath that medical and technological innovation were the poor labor conditions that often saw children in horrible conditions to produce for the unfathomably wealthy, patients with mental illness locked away in squalid and sometimes abusive conditions, Ideas stolen from other cultures whose people were exploited, colonized, and left in destitution. And a society built on power, greed, and gendered hierarchies. Uh, The 19th century was deadly to many, many people. Now, even with the advancements to medicine, disease was still a worry. Poverty still claimed the weak and the young. And meanwhile, great beauty was available to those who could pay, and pay they did. Fashion was the world of the consumer, especially of the feminine sex. There was a tapestry of variety for the ladies living in 19th century Europe and America. But while some would make one look as a screamer, to use a 19th century term for uh, someone who was outstanding or exceptional, some were silent assassins that would steal the hopeful youth and beauty of the wearer and offer instead the pallor of death. Some Victorian-era advice for looking young and radiant included the need for a serene face, a sweet expression... A kind and gentle look, for these are all like a day in spring, and the smile on the lips is a ray of sunshine. How to achieve these goals? Maybe you could use a white arsenic face cream, but you may have to deal with the side effects which included headaches, confusion, severe diarrhea, drowsiness, vomiting, blood in the urine, cramping muscles, hair loss, stomach pain, and convulsions. But your visage will be right as rain, to catch the eye of the gentleman across the parlor. To keep that radiant smile, you may wish to try the cocaine toothpaste. If you're able to deal with severe anxiety, or as they like to call it, hysteria, irritability, wouldn't want to scare off your catch, paranoia, damage to the heart, brain, lungs, gastrointestinal tract, and kidneys. But not to worry, it's probably just your feminine sensitivities, unnecessary worry, and the heartache of love. All cosmetic joking aside, there are some things you probably do think of when it comes to for the suffering of fashion that we associate with the Victorian era. But while some were a legitimate concern, some do need a bit more examination. I know that before I knew better, I immediately thought of corsets and the shocking images that were shown by doctors to warn against the health risks that the pursuit of a tiny waist could bring. We think of broken ribs, the wilting, suffocating woman— But this actually only occurred in extreme cases, so for the most part, wearing a corset would still give you a pleasurable shape if it was fitted correctly for your size. But there was a trend among young women known as tight lacing, which would lead to an even more fashionable 17 to 22 inch waist. The general rule for that was the hand span rule which allowed that your waist should be as wide as the span of your hand. So some women would try to make their waists far smaller than they should be to achieve this, Uh, but we should be reminded that this was far fewer in between than some people make it out to be who talk about corsetry. Uh, Most women were wise enough not to conform to this trend. I would say that it is the equivalent of saying that so many kids are eating Tide Pods and all millennials like avocado toast from those wonderful articles in Forbes that were released a few uh, months ago, year ago. I don't even know how long it's been, but they like to lump everyone in the same boat. So, you know, just stop it. Uh, It's not true. That being said, it is really only in the 19th century that we can see the reports in newspapers that are exploring the medical damage caused by overlacing. As early as 1829, reports in newspapers showed concern over the use of corsets, and there were often pictures used in later accounts at the turn of the century, so 1890s and later, uh, that hoped to use images instead of merely words to evoke change. Granted, there were also medical reports released that seemed to show some truth in the concern. Apparently, one Parisian woman in 1859 had a 13-inch waist as a result of corseting and suddenly died. An autopsy apparently showed that her liver had been punctured by three ribs. There are tales of a chambermaid who complained of extreme stomach pain, only to be found dead soon after. And her stomach, according to doctors, was nearly severed in half, according to the medical report, leaving a canal only as narrow as a raven's feather. If a woman died and was found to have a thin waist and to have been wearing a corset frequently, medical professionals would sometimes use the term tight laced liver. And so this is a malformation of the organ that indicated an over lacing and uh, a frequently worn corset with that tight lace. In 1881, a postmortem on a woman named Amelia Jury, who was 43 years of age, presented a stomach constricted on an eighth of its natural size and a liver that was flattened and driven down deep into the pelvis. There are several other accounts of these types of postmortem reports, but they were all a result of tight lacing, which was not the norm. It was extreme cases of use. So I would like to now move on to another riveting piece of history because there are so many things I can talk about with corsetry, but that would dictate its entirely own episode. If you are interested in learning more about corsetry and other sort of fashion trends and ideas about these things, and especially ideas about how they connect to hysteria, because tight lacing did offer other symptoms such as feeling faint, um, passing out, obviously, and I've experienced that myself, actually, from lacing my stays too tightly at work, and I know several other of my coworkers workers have, have experienced that as well, where if you lace yourself too tightly or your stays are not placed correctly, um, it can bring some of those symptoms. Uh, but with corseting, you know, it's really only coming from that tight lacing, so if you were looking for more about that, I highly, highly recommend a book called Suffer and Be Silent uh, that talks about that and talks a lot about corseting And the further implications of the usage of that to dictate men's belief about women's mental illness in the 19th and early 20th century. So that is a very, very good book if you're looking for more information on that. Um, But I would like to now move on to another riveting piece of history that absolutely did kill quite a few people. And that is the crinoline. We start to see this beautiful little death chamber pop up in the mid-19th century. Uh, previously, during the Regency period, which spanned from about 1795 to 1830, the fashion for gowns took on a much more uh, high-waisted, softer silhouette. Uh, so in the Regency period, gowns were usually made of a very lightweight fabric, fabric that fell In a body skimming way with the waistline starting just below the bosom. So to all of you today, the closest thing that would would be recognizable to a Regency period gown would be something today in wedding dresses that is called an empire waist dress. Or you can just watch any sort of interpretation of Jane Austen Regency period dress as well. Um, And I'm sure I have plenty of my friends in fashion that have their own commentary about that. Uh, But that is the closest depiction that I can give you without being able to show you a picture while I'm talking. Um, But if anybody is interested in that, shoot me a message on the episode afterwards, as always. And uh, I can post some Regency period dresses for you to look at from archives that I've found. Um, so I got all of the information about the Regency period and, and sort of the earlier um, fashions to just sort of give you a bit of a context for how rapidly things change into the crinoline in a lovely little book I found called Corsets and Cod Pieces. And so as you can tell, if you know me very well by now, you know that that is a book that immediately caught my eye. So it's written by a woman named Car- uh, Karen Bowman, who used a lot of primary source material and archival material to uh, extrapolate on strange fashions over the time period. Um, But I was mainly focusing on the Regency period and the Victorian era, at least the first part of it, for discussing crinolines. So as time went on, if you're looking from the body-skimming ideas of the Regency period, skirts started to grow so what would become described as the crinoline first appeared as a linen material that was interwoven with horsehair, used for cloth petticoats so the desire came to be that you would have a drop waist so a very small waist with a very large domed appearance to your skirts uh, by 1840 1840 excuse me uh Women were wearing no less than six petticoats to achieve the round-skirted look that was quickly becoming the fashion. And for those of you who don't follow historical fashion, the term petticoat is essentially referring to uh, your skirts. It is a separate garment uh, that is worn underneath either a gown or a jacket or a top piece. So whenever you think of a petticoat, you just think of today as, as the skirt, the underneath. Um... So, according to some fashion historians, the real predecessor of the crinoline was the 16th century Spanish farthingale. So, as stated by Brad Smithfield in his article, Crinoline Mania, uh, that's a term first coined by the British uh, medical satire magazine Punch that was extremely popular. Uh, Crinoline Mania, and he wrote this for Vintage News, These wide, full skirts were much adored by the Spanish ladies even back in the 15th century. The Queen Consort of Castile, Joanna of Portugal, copied their style and introduced it to court, attracting admiring attention, although court rumor had it that the main reason she wore this style was to hide her illegitimate pregnancy. England became acquainted with the crinoline when Catherine of Aragon, the first wife of Henry VIII, wore a Spanish farthingale made of linen and cane sticks. So the very, very early versions of what would later become called the crinoline are made with cane, and even into the later period, in, you know far into the 19th century, you do still see cane crinolines being used. Um, so they are the cheaper version that you could afford as opposed to metal versions that come later on. In the period between the late 1850s and 1869, however, technological advances made the modern version um, easier to acquire for the modern woman. So it became all the rage, in fact, and this modern version hit the markets as early as 1856. Some historians credit the patent for the metal cage, yes, you heard that right, cage, Uh, crinoline coming from an American, W.S. Thompson. And I was able to find an example of a metal cage crinoline in the archive of the National Gallery of Victoria that is dated to 1860, which was called an Empress crinoline frame. So that was the model that they have that dates to 1860. So the cage frames were generally made of a lightweight steel, but it's more likely that credit for some of the first cages goes to a man named R.C. Millier of Paris. Uh, So there are different sort of ideas about who the first patent actually was, Um, but we see a lot of these, in fact, most of these being uh, produced in Great Britain. So whether it is Thompson or Millier that originates that patent, those are the two first accredited as early as 1856 with the modern metal cage. So Thompson's, however, in London, was the largest manufacturer of crinolines, and I am not sure if this is related to W.S. Thompson. I was not really able to find that information, um, but Thompson's was a British producer of crinolines and at the height of their crinoline fashion employed over 1,000 women in their London factory and produced three to 4,000 crinolines a day, which were sold in Britain and exported overseas. With the introduction of the cages and the elimination for the need of layers of petticoats came a small hazard in comparison to the storm of nope that will come in just a minute. Um, And that is the need for women's drawers. So you can just go walking outside with your cage and hit a squall and flash the world and its sensitive Victorian virtue. So now we have two garments that we need to purchase. So as you can imagine, you have six petticoats weighing you down. Not really much to worry about with wind. Um, When you introduce a cage with a very, very lightweight satin, silk, or linen going over it uh, and you walk outside in nothing but that (laughs) um, underneath you, that's going to draw the need for some undergarments. So this is where you see women's drawers being introduced as a part of fashion as well. Um, Also you now only needed one petticoat to help soften the ridges of the cage a bit underneath your clothing. So if the idea of women walking around in both metaphorical and literal cages shocks you, I can think of a few more things involving cages that should shock you more. Uh, But I digress. It is a lot to unpack. Professor, Professor Linda Need explored this in a bit in her lecture given at Gresham College, titled The Crinoline Cage. Uh, so she gave this lecture in February 2014, and in it she explores primary sources to get a better understanding of the cult of crinoline, including letters between women of the period and artwork depicting the factions. What's more interesting, however, is the usage of fashion as a mode of resistance that she brings into the picture, which I very much liked about all of her information um, that I was able to find in her lecture, which is published online. So uh, both video, audio, and documentation are posted online. So if you do want to look for that, the spelling for that is Linda, L-Y-N-D-A, need, N-E-A-D. So that is was given at Gresham College. So look that up. It's really a lot of fun. Um, but I really like this idea she brings in as the usage of a crinoline in the Victorian period as a mode of resistance. So she argues that the history of fashionable dress in the 19th century isn't simply a narrative of stylistic change or evolution, to which we attach moral approval, but rather an embodied phenomenological practice that draws distinctions of gender, class, age, and status, and that can express assertion and subversion as much as docility or submission. So in case that isn't clear to some of you, she does explain, uh, saying that dress in the 19th century played a significant part in the performance of femininity that in many ways departs from conventional conservative images of respectable Victorian womanhood. So that idea of sort of the chained and bound woman that we get with Victorian womanhood, um, she's sort of breaking away from that and says that it actually departs from that a little bit. Um, And that it rather gave women access to a bodily language that involved imaginative projection and fantasy, dressing to stand out in the crowd and to display a daring ostentation. She goes on to add that fashion was a part of the women's imaginative and sensual world in the mid-19th century, and that the crinoline in particular was poised between being a sign of female passivity and a sign of physical presence. So essentially, this means that women were daring in a time when their roles were being shifted by those in power to take up space, to be noticed, and to force others to move aside for them, as opposed to passively being an ornament. They were ornaments for themselves, and the letters that Need uses between Amelia Roper and her friend Martha Busher show that when the women are discussing the pleasure they get from their attire, uh, both in the way that it feels on their bodies and in the way it makes them look, is purely indulgent and meant as a mode for confidence. So while they're floating around in a ribboned cage, they were actually quite pleased with themselves. Uh, There are, however, historians who have argued otherwise. Within feminism, it has been traditionally seen as a symbol of the Victorian woman's domestic enslavement and submission. We get this idea from descriptions like Virginia Woolf, describing a woman in a crinoline in her novel Orlando, originally published in 1928 and later used by Helene E. Roberts in 1977 with the formulation of the term exquisite slave, which... Let's talk about all the problems of a white lady feminist using the term slave in reference to a whole lot of other white ladies that were some uh, extremely wealthy. Uh, We would be here way longer than the episode length, but no time like the present to be confronted with the problematic historiography. Anyway, uh, that's the image a lot of people, feminists, historians, and feminist historians, like I consider myself, have clung to over the years. But as we all know, as ideas about history come about, they are malleable and they change when we learn new information. So do ideas about feminism and the roles that certain material objects have played in shaping our social understanding of those ideas. So all of this changes with time and with finding out new information. And in fact, historians like David Kunzel, who focuses on corsets and tight lacing, have counter argued that rather than being slaves to patriarchal patriarchal culture... These women were subverting cultural norms. They were defying medical and moral authority and asserting their own self-conscious identities. So he argues that the extremes of fashion were a source of narcissistic erotic pleasure, and that this resulted in the backlash expressed in the popular press over many of these fashions. So either way, women's 19th century fashion, both with corsets and crinolines, is showing us a binary argument Uh, at this time for women's sexual politics. So you can take that either way, but both arguments are very sound in the way that we see women describing their own fashions with their own agency and the way we see other people describing it. So I'm sure you can see both sides of it, but it is a nuanced issue. It is not a one-sided issue, as many things in history are not. Uh, But like any smooth ride for women, this was soon to come to a very fiery end. And I mean that literally, because the backlash against these bad boys is 100% justified. Instead of fun, 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 till her daddy takes her crinoline away, it becomes more like fun, 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 until you make a bad move and your crinoline lights you on fire. So before I get into the gruesome details of the reason why this episode has come from my brain, I need to make a little bit of a disclaimer about fire. If several of my Salem history friends are listening, they probably know exactly what I'm about to say. A long time ago in historic house museums not so far away, there was a prevailing idea that the second cause of death for women in the 17th century in the colonies was death from injuries caused by burns. We now know that this was not indeed the case, as there is no real basis for that information. Granted, we are now dealing with the 19th century and crinolines, which make a strong damn case for death, and causes of death and women and fire, uh, but that is not in the 17th century. The reality is that the main cause of death was complications before, during, and after childbirth. However, in a close second and third situation are diseases uh, and Native American conflict. Not to mention that as a woman or a man, if you lived to be a woman or a man in the new world in the 17th century, you're doing pretty well. Because as a child, you are at great risk and you could be killed by all sorts of fun things like diphtheria, influenza, smallpox, measles, pneumonia, and scarlet fever, to say the least. So just to lay that to rest once and for all, it's not until these cagey poof monsters that you need to really have a whole lot of worry about flames. Uh, Moving right along... With the invention and accessibility of new cages, crinolines became instantly the most popular and widely accepted fashion for ladies in the beginning of the Victorian age. In 1861, in the Dundee Courier, it was reported that even servants wore the skirt, and the Dundee Courier commented on the impracticality of the fashion, stating that Unlike former times of hoops and farthingales, the fashion has even descended to the servants, so that where the dining room is small, table maids have been known to give warning, because they could not clear the space between the table and the fire, and the newspapers are continually announcing, accident from crinoline or woman burned to death. If anyone had any qualms about the dangers of fashion, they went largely ignored for a very long time. Uh, Perhaps if the women wearing these bells of death had taken a bit more notice to the grumblings about the fashion, maybe deaths could have been prevented. Uh, Now, I do have to say, this is the only case of mansplaining that I will ever say is justified, because the backlash against the crinoline grew really, really quickly. It started, uh, at most, uh, as a as most objections to women's fashion do in the medical satire magazine Punch, uh, with its references to descriptions of women wearing these as artificers of iron and complaints about crinolines hitting men in the shins and of the hoops giving women the waddle of the stout woman of 50. Uh, Punch gives us the perfect example of the Victorian version of male fragility at the mere thought of not having the room for man-spreading. And indeed, Professor Need seems to back me up on this when she says that the second reason men hated crinolines was because of their volume, the first one being fire, which I swear I'll get to. Uh, I keep mentioning fire, but we will get there. Within a course of scale and propriety, the crinoline represented excess, and Need argues that its expansive layers were an ostentatious display of extravagant consumption. Women and crinolines took up too much room. They invaded men's space, and they swept them off the pavement with their enormous girth. So, in other words, crinolines were causing men not only to worry about women lighting on fire, but to worry about their girth. And uh, I'll let you make the decision on which way you want to take that. Uh, You can take it all ways, as far as I'm concerned. However, all the joking about uh, maximum rustling that was going on surrounding crinolines, uh, both literally and metaphorically, crinolines are quite possibly one of the most, if not the most, dangerous fashion trend of all time. Um, Stay tuned for. For part two, for the counter-argument to the statement I just made, Uh, you will find that I oftentimes argue with myself, and this is going to be one of those times. Um, But for now, we're going to stick to part one. So this was a fashion trend that was possibly one of the most dangerous of all time. It was one that was contested, that has caused a lot of thought not only on function, but on its place within the greater social fabric and understanding of 19th century culture, and it's one that could kill. In October of 1861, the Guardian reprinted an article subtitled Crinoline, a Real Social Evil, claiming that it was responsible for more deaths than any other fashion, although there is not a definite count on how many deaths it caused. It blamed the crinoline for impoverishing respectable households, corrupting the morals of the working classes, and causing death by disemboweling, by wounds from broken steel springs, drownings, crushings, and burnings. So now we can delve into what exactly some of these recorded injuries were. The first account comes from Bowman in Corsets and Cod Pieces, and it discusses the death of Mary Ann Winterbottom, uh, aged 22, which was described in the Shoreditch Observer in 1861. She had picked up a shovel full of burning coals to light the drawing room fire and placed it on the ground while she stooped to get wood from a cupboard. Her dress must have swept over the coals as she was wearing a cane crinoline, and the garment rapidly caught fire. The jury returned a verdict of accidental death, but expressed horror and disgust that someone of the household, uh, who had household duty- duties that brought them into contact with hearth fires, still chose to wear this garment. In 1862, 17-year-old Ann Lane of Bedford found herself aflame when she stooped, leaned forward to dress her hair in a looking glass placed on a table, and in doing so, her crinoline billowed out behind her towards the lit fire in the grate, where the back of her dress was instantly engulfed. Her family immediately rushed to her at great risk to themselves, tore away nearly all of her clothes, and wrapped her in a large quilt. Despite their quick efforts, she later died from her injuries and the shock of having been badly burnt about the legs, as reported in the Worcestershire Chronicle on May 14, 1862. A year later, it was reported that a 16-year-old servant, Maria Agnes Devonshire, had died while wearing a crinoline. As part of her duties, she washed the children's faces in the mornings, and as she stooped down, her crinoline was forced between the bars of the fire grate. She instantly caught fire and ran out into the garden where her master, hearing her screams, rushed into the garden. But before he could extinguish the flames, Maria had received fatal injuries. So there are many, many, many more accounts of this. But while I said that men seem to have many, many problems with crinolines, the injuries do seem to really be the majority of them. So while Punch is a medical satire and jokes about, you know, women taking up space and all of those things, um, most of the complaints from newspapers and publications are coming from general concern from it, for injuries of all of these accounts that people were bringing forward. Uh, mon- one man actually raised his concerns in the Morning Post in 1861, signing himself simply a father. And in it, he says, The risks incurred every hour of every day by the wearer of a crinoline dress cannot be denied. Ingenuity is at a loss to devise a costume more dangerous from fire than this balloon-like apparatus stitched to the female form. Our low-open fireplaces, candles, lucifer matches, the simple act of sealing a letter is pregnant with danger. Can any condemnatory of this detestable costume be so strong. And in 1864, a Dr. Lancaster reported that there had been 2,500 deaths in London alone from fire on account of crinolines. So reactions from the public were becoming noticeably numerous um, and bordering on impatient. So women are still ignoring the warning signs. As early as 1859, Punch Magazine had stated uh, that unless dresses are made fireproof, no one, while the present stuck-out fashion lasts, can wear them safely. As a deterrent from wide petticoats, we should pass an act of Parliament to regulate their sale, and should permit none to be worn without being marked dangerous. They also joked that... If ever there were a crinoline insurance company established, it couldn't possibly withstand the constant claims, fire escapes should be provided in all drawing rooms, and air tubes within the petticoat might all be filled with water and a means to eject it, thus making every lady her own fire engine. Needless to say, none of those came to fruition. In June of 1863, even as something as mundane as climbing the stairs posed a serious threat, Uh, Despite the introduction of strings, hinges, and pulley systems that were eventually attached to the underside of the skirt to help with raising the front of the hoop, um, there was still an instance where the wife of a merchant caught her foot in a crinoline and fell with such force that she fractured her skull. Even the genteel pursuit of archery apparently became a hazard, uh, according to Bowman, where she says that in Hertfordshire, the wife of a clergyman suddenly sat down on the grass, snapping one of the steel hoops which supported her dress. The sharp end penetrated a tender part of her body and inflicted a severe internal wound. And Bowman goes on to say that another lady from Bath, while standing talking with friends, was unaware of her dress um, that was extending across a footpath and was accidentally dragged along the ground when a delivery cart drove past and its step hooked into her crinoline. Both of her legs were broken. Now, this got so bad that crinolines were even banned in church. They were taking up so much space that churches literally stopped allowing crinolines inside of them because it was taking up too much space and causing too many hazards. Um, So accidents outside the home also proved to be fatal. So not just lighting yourself on fire in the home, but there's a whole lot of fun menagerie of accidents that can happen to you outside as proved by the cart dragging. Um, In 1860, the textile firm Cortland's actually instructed all of their workers to leave hoop skirt and crinoline at home. Uh, For one young woman, a 17 year old factory worker employed ironically in a crinoline factory in Sheffield, there was no such advice. Uh, So the Essex standard in 1860 reported that Sarah Ann Murphin, aged 17, ascended a ladder to the upper floor to ask for a companion. The ladder was 3 feet from the wall, and between it and the wall, a revolving shaft used to drive machinery. Her skirt, much extended by crinoline, entang- entangled in this machinery, and Sarah screamed for assistance, but before the shaft could be stopped. So it whirled her around a great number of times, and her head and other parts of the body were dashed against the wall and the joists of the floor and above the ladder. So this girl was already dead when they released her from the machinery. Her skull was incredibly fractured, her leg was nearly torn off, and her body was, to all reports, shockingly injured. But all of the uh, injuries aside that you could suffer from a crinoline... There was also a bit of a moral panic going on with crinolines, Um, so much so that there was an anti-crinoline league that existed for a while, and there were those that wholeheartedly embrace the trend of an anti-crinoline league. Uh, So in a letter to the Morning Post in 1861, one woman eloquently pointed out that as the crinoline was so popular and universal, not to wear one would be quaint to absurdity. Um, She also pointed out that the risk to crinoline from a fire could easily be remedied without detracting from the grace or comfort of the fashion. Uh, So... Even though there was an anti-crinoline league, people were very, very much behind crinolines and they really weren't going to let it go. Um, Now, of course, there was other things happening with crinolines that caused a moral panic. And mainly, uh, it was known as stealing. So not that I need to tell you what stealing is, I have dubbed this hoop skirt heists because that is much more fashionable in my opinion. So I'm going to go ahead and call it hoop skirt heisting. So... There was a case where Margaret Toole, a well-dressed woman of about 25, was charged, according to a newspaper report in 1862, with robbery at a draper's shop. After walking about looking for several articles in her peculiar manner, according to the report, she aroused the suspicions of the assistant, and moments later she noticed some fringing, Um, the assistant noticed some fringing hanging down from underneath the woman's skirt. On calling for help... A policeman apprehended her and not far from the shop and escorted her to the police station where it was found that the woman had nine black silk mantles and two colored silk dresses between her crinoline, all amounting to over seven pounds. Needless to say, she was remanded. Um, People became even bolder, uh, even though the crinoline thieves were starting to get caught. Um, So Eliza Dresser was arrested at Hull Police Station and... She was remanded for stealing copious amounts of bed linen beneath her skirts and was lately discovered to be hiding a a set of steel fire irons suspended from her waist. She protested that they were her own, but the police couldn't find any reason why she should wish to transport such items in a way, um, so she was charged. Now, from shoplifting, uh, Bowman says, and I agree with her, It's only a short step to smuggling, and who doesn't love a little bit of smuggling? So now we have graduated from hoop skirt heists to skirt smuggling. Yay, skirt smuggling. Uh, So there was a woman traveling aboard a ship from Holland that was suspected of doing such due to her strange gait while walking. Elizabeth Barbara Laurens, a native of Holland, denied all charges, declaring she walked strangely due to a pregnancy. Upon further inspection, Miss Laurens was found to have no less than five pounds of cigars, nine pounds of tobacco, a quantity of tea, and a bottle of gin, all concealed beneath her crinoline. And there was a similar case with Ellen Carey, whose arrest was featured in the Chester Chronicle of 1858, so a little earlier. Um, Described as a neatly dressed female, she was accused of smuggling 22 pounds of cigars within three large petticoats. As a passenger aboard the General Steam navigation ship Mazelle. it was only once the ship landed uh, and entered St. Catherine's Dock She was preparing to alight that she alerted the tide surveyor, Mr. Gardner, with her, according to him, immense rotundity of dress. When challenged, she explained that her blown appearance was due to the crinoline, which every woman in the land wore and would not beg a lot of questioning. Um, So whatever he thought on the subject, she was arguing that most ladies are going to look like this, and she would be right. Um, on being stripped of her skirts, however, by a female searcher, the cigars were removed from her person, and she was once more brought before her accusers. Um, her smuggling had cost her a hundred-pound fine and six months' imprisonment. Ouch. Uh, so, if you didn't think the backlash against the crinoline could get any worse, uh Spoiler alert, it does. Um, Even Florence Nightingale joins the attack on crinoline. Um, So while it was admired by most, it starts to be compared uh, to tents on battlefields. And Florence Nightingale was another person who thought that crinolines shouldn't be on battlefields. In 1863, she warned her nurses against the use of crinoline on the grounds. Uh, that if a modest woman knew the spectacle which she presented to her patients when bending over a fire with expanded dress, she would forever renounce the obnoxious vestment. And Florence Nightingale says, we don't want to go back to the high waists and scanty dresses of our grandmothers, but surely there is a happy medium. Uh, So English wire was what produced the best uh, material for the crinoline cages, as I discussed earlier. Um, So it becomes this commercial Thing, so it's really amazing to me that there is such a backlash against the crinoline, not for the fact that there were injuries, but for the fact that this was such a highly produced item and it was such a lucrative item. And oftentimes, you see that when things are a highly lucrative item, they are not deterred. So with the crinoline, it's this, it's this case, and it's this moment in our history where people are actually having a backlash against this for all of the reasons presented in the episode, but also for the fact that they were literally killing people. Um, Now, the reason I got interested in this is actually because of a story I heard when I was visiting uh, Oak Alley Plantation in New Orleans. So if you've listened to my New Orleans episode, you have probably heard me talk about that. Um, Now, I heard about this at Oak Alley taking a tour, And our tour guide basically showed us a picture of somebody in the Ramon family who was the family that later owned the plantation, and she said that it was Louise Ramon, and I had to actually call and confirm this name because I did not write it down since I was on the tour, Um, and I've been waiting for a response from Oak Alley Plantation for quite some time. I finally did call there uh, today, actually. And spoke to Sarah Dickerson, who is one of the directors of the archives and sort of material history of the site, and she told me an interesting bit of information, which sort of goes along with the exaggeration that you see in many of these crinoline accounts, because despite all of the claims... We find that there's really not a whole lot of concrete evidence to determine exactly how many people were injured by crinolines. So this is an instance of a moral panic where people absolutely are being injured and there are records of people being injured, but it reaches such a fever pitch that there are people then making claims of you know, 2,500 people in a year, like that doctor in London, so I called to ask about Luis Roman uh, so that I could actually confirm the story that I had heard. The story the tour guide told us was that uh, Luis was running up the stairs and that she tripped and that... She was wearing a whalebone corset, um, which did become used later on. Not very widely, but this was a very wealthy family, so that may have been the reasoning for it. Do I know if it was actually a whalebone corset? No, I don't. Uh, but this is what we were told. And it goes along with a legend in, um, that was used at the site for a very long time, according to Sarah, that uh, Luis was actually trying to escape a suitor. She runs up the stairs. She cracks her crinoline. And it punctures her leg above the knee. And apparently, according to this legend that was told for a very long time, she suffered an infection as a result of this crinoline injury and had to have her leg amputated. And um, I do believe I mentioned this in the episode about New Orleans. But I want to mention it again because this is one of the reasons that uh, it took me so long to release this episode because I wanted confirmation on the story. So I called Sarah. And luckily, she was perfectly willing to give me some information, and she's actually going to send me a bit more. She's going to tell me what she can dig up for definite about this story so that I can actually show you all some documentation. Um, but Luis Roman, uh, that story about her is actually a legend. So it is something that had become canon at the plantation for a very long time, and it was used in the tours for a very long time. Uh, what did happen, however, is that Luis was actually... Injured in a horseback riding accident. So her leg did get infected. And it did in fact get amputated. And the photograph that you see in the house. Does indeed seem to show that. It shows the dip in her dress. Where her leg should have been. Um, But hearing that story about the crinoline is what got me interested in doing a little bit more research to see just how deadly this garment was. So if you're wondering about some of the places I get my inspiration for all of this uh, sort of macabre and spooky history that I tell you, um, this is where I get it. Uh, From experiencing things and talking with fellow historians and learning at historic sites, I can't tell you how valuable it is to go to these some of these sites because you never know what you're going to hear and you never know what path that's going to lead you down. Um, on that note, I am about wrapping up. So let's just do a quick recap of what we've talked about. We've talked about deadly cosmetics. We have covered a little bit of myth-busting about the corset, and now we have covered the crinoline, or as I'm going to dub it forever, um, the cage of fiery death. So... In discussing Cages of Fiery Death, I now am ending this episode because I was going to try and fit the second part of this, which is why I call this part one of She's Got Looks That Kill. Part 2 we'll discuss another bit of deadly fashion, again from the 19th century, and you can have all of the guesses that you like on what exactly that is. So in order to extrapolate on that, I will see you next time with part two. So as always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, please go on the website and let me know. I would be more than happy to answer any of your comments or give you any sources or connect you to any sources if you want to explore more of this on your own. Um, I'm always open to ideas as well. So I actually have quite a few coming down the pipeline that are ideas and inspiration um, given from podcast listeners. So stay tuned for that. Um, You can find all of the episodes, as always, on the iTunes podcast app and on the website, lifeaftermidnightsalem.com. I've actually just submitted to... um Oh, and now I'm losing it. I've just submitted to another app uh, for Android users, uh, Stitcher. So I've just submitted that today. So you will be able to access these on Android very soon, which is a great announcement. And also I've added on the website a donations page because as you all know, this is a very small operation. So if you want to see more of this and if you want me to be able to do cooler and bigger and better things for you, um, I would like to eventually work on getting merch for you all as well. Um, feel free to hit donate. Of course, it's completely voluntary. um, But all of that will go entirely back into the production of the podcast. So that is all I have for you. Thank you again for listening. I truly, truly appreciate you all letting me do what I love. And as always, stay spooky.